Hi, everyone, and welcome to Faculty BC's podcast. My name is Rasmeet Mohar. I am a director on the Faculty BC board, um, and I am with Hassan Alam, who is our VP external on the board. We will be the co-host for today's podcast, which will cover the topic of how minorities are represented in media while focusing on specific current issues impacting Asians in Canada today, including the farmers' protests in India and the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and their portrayal in media sources. Speaking on this topic is our awesome guest, Jaskaran Sandhu, a senior consultant with Crestview Strategy based out of Toronto. Welcome to our podcast, Jaskaran. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time especially given the time difference since you're out in Toronto we really appreciate it. No, I'm I'm happy to be here and I'm also I'm also used to living in different time zones. Okay, well that's convenient. Um so you know we we really wanted to leave it off to you to kind of describe your career path. We know that you're a lawyer as well like us. Um but your career has kind of taken a turn of its own and you you've kind of sort of left our crew and you've become a consultant you also you know are running boss media so we'd love to hear how you landed where you are today yeah so i i'm still a lawyer uh so for the folks listening you can take me seriously uh, <laughs> don't don't judge me off the bat um but yeah i i don't actively practice anymore and in my career trajectory has been a little strange and i i like to half jokingly say that i i stumbled um across you know, this decade post or decade plus now post law school. Um, but I, I've always had like a general framing of uh, or a general understanding of where I wanted to be and government and politics, um, advocacy was always something that interested me greatly. And, 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 and I guess in a, in a lot of ways, I always thought law would be a means to a different end. Uh, and, and it's kind of happened that way. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I came out of law school, I, um, I summered at uh, Matthew Dinsdale, uh, which is a labor and employment firm in, in Toronto. Uh, then I switched sides uh, from corporate to union uh, when I articled at uh, Watson Jacobs McCurry, which is a, which did a lot of a construction union uh, work. Um, after that, I uh, hung on my own shingle and uh, started practicing uh, criminal uh, law in Brampton, which is uh, one of the busiest courts uh, in, the, in the country, uh, from, at least from my understanding. Now, this is also a long time ago. Uh, but what I what I really started doing afterwards was uh, a lot of consulting work in, in politics and government. Yeah, again, let me one step uh, to another until I kind of drifted away from law. Like I, I did a lot of advocacy work, again, political work. I, I ended up um, working for the mayor's office in Brampton uh, first as a as a comms director. Eventually, the the role morphed into a senior advisor, and I started picking up a lot of special projects for the mayor. Uh, from there, uh, ended up at the World Sick Organization, uh, where I where I actually had been involved in one capacity or another for you know I will say about five to seven years at that point uh, when I was hired as the executive director. Uh, spent a little time there as ED, and then from there uh, ended up at Crestview Strategy, uh, which is a public affairs firm. Uh, and I, you know I'm on the the government relations side, but there's a campaigns we do uh, strat uh, stratcoms crisis communications. You know your typical run-of-the-mill public affairs agency uh, with um, offices across Canada and in the in the UK and in Washington DC as well, and uh, and I, I yeah this is probably where I end off uh, and hopefully stick around here for a while. Uh, it's been almost two years, 
uh, really enjoy it. I, uh, yeah, for, for all intents and purposes, I, I really did take an alternative career post-law. I mean, that's really cool. I feel like your career path is almost like a postcard for all the amazing things that you can do with a, with a law degree, obviously with the underlying theme of advocacy and like community engagement. And very cool that you articled at a labor place. I'm a union side labor lawyer myself too. Um, Fighting the good fight. Look, I, I, I will say this. I will say this, uh, Hassan. Um, being a lawyer doesn't make it does make it easier for my parents to just tell people what I do for a living because they still don't understand this whole consulting gig. They don't understand what the hell I've been up to for the last little while. Uh, so, so when people ask, they still say, "Oh yeah, he's a lawyer." Uh, so it's it's definitely made their life easier. Uh, but yeah, it's a great general degree, right? Like you get you know, immediate accountability uh, no matter what you do with a law degree behind you. Brother, the only reason I did a law degree was so my parents could brag about it and get off my back. So hey, look, I... <laughs> it's the same. It's the same story. Don't worry. Same motivations. Yeah. Um, speaking of motivations, um, you know, you've started up Boz Media, and I was wondering if you'd tell our audience a little bit about what Boz Media is, and again, what sort of was the catalyst for you starting up this media outlet? Yeah. So Boz uh, is a um, is a home for. Uh, original reporting ideas and opinions uh, for the Sikh and uh, Punjabi diaspora. Uh, and we have uh, writers and contributors, uh, primarily uh, from the US, Canada, and the UK. We do have some content that's uh, coming in from Australia now. Uh, so you know, that's definitely a market where we, we're focused on. Uh, but it's it's all about making kind of like the, the this diaspora community, uh, this the sick world smaller, uh, and and make it easier for us to kind of converse with one another on on issues that are important to us as a community, um, to do original reporting and, and stories uh, that matter to us that otherwise don't get attention in the mainstream or don't at least get the the layer of of nuance and uh, and detail that I think we we look for. Um, and, uh, you know, just getting to the point where we can start telling our own story. And, and that was incredibly important to me. Um, you know, in this, I, you know, I kind of fast forward and water down my trajectory, my, my career story. But I spent a lot of time in comms. Uh, and I, I spent a lot of time uh, doing media work. Uh, and I saw it firsthand, uh, the, the kind of issues um, and the gaps that exist. And, you know, while it's gotten a little better, and, and I think the farmers protests provide some examples of how it has, um, you know, the mainstream is not necessarily designed to tell our story. Uh, we're not we're not big enough of a market for it. Uh, and they just they're just not equipped for, a di you know, diverse stories like this because they lack the diversity in the newsroom. So that's uh, the gap that Boz uh, tries to fill, you know thinking about Boz Media and, you know, how it's providing such an avenue of expression for people that don't usually get it, it, it kind of leads into our discussion of, you know, what are some of the challenges that communities of color face with respect to how they're portrayed by mainstream media? And, you know, Boz seems to kind of fulfill some of those issues, like representing and, and, and allowing a space for uh, Sikhs to own their narratives. But, you know, in your opinion, what are some challenges within mainstream media that, you know, has kind of pushed you to create this space? Okay, well, my motivations starts, uh, I would say, 14, 15 years ago. There was a documentary that the CBC National put on at that time, which was called Samosa Politics. Uh, and it was put on by a journalist named Terry Molesky. Now, like, I think for a lot of Sikhs and uh, folks in the Punjabi community, uh, they remember this, like, especially I would say like in our age group, um, I look garbage for my age, but I'm a millennial. So like our millennial <laughs> age group, you know, young, young people like us um, will remember this vividly, right? Because we were probably, you know, we're in like that 15 to 20, 25 year old kind of range. So, 
you know, we're, we're reasonable, mature human beings at that point of our life. Uh, so we I, I don't know life. if I was, I'm going to say, I think I'm much younger than you guys. I okay, might be, that's fair. I'm in your camp. Don't worry. I, yeah. think you're, I think I'm a baby millennial, but I don't want to be Gen Z. So I'm going to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Gen Z is <laughs> garbage. Um, no. So like I, I was 19 or 20 at that time. Uh, if I, if I remember correctly. Right. So um, I remember watching uh, this this documentary, which was rife with problems. Like its name is racist, right? Put against put put aside everything else. Uh, like the other thing that exists just in its name uh, is enough to denounce this thing. But like the content was very problematic for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and one of them being that you know it lacked a lot of nuance. Uh, it uh, made a lot of loose connections. Uh, there was a uh, the storytelling was was absolutely nuts. Uh, but also like the sources they use and the people they interviewed. Uh, who were people that we knew in the community didn't speak for us, uh, but they were being platformed uh, by this white senior journalist uh, who was given the time of day because he carried credibility in the agency, right? In, in, the, in the CBC, like the institution itself. And I, I remember being a 20 year old guy uh, watching that uh, and, I, and I felt powerless. It's like, what can I do? I can, I can literally do nothing. Like, you know, other than like our own little bubbles, there was no way I can actually communicate our issues with this. And, you know, internally as a community, obviously this, this generated a lot of conversation, but it got like no one else saw it, no one else read it, no one else felt it. Um, and that really stuck with me for 15 years. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of different battles and there's a lot of like reductionism and like all these stereotypes that's really built into a lot of the coverage that comes um, about our communities and like a lot of racialized, marginalized communities, right? It's not exclusive to, in this case, like the Sikh community or Punjabi community. Um, you know, you have examples pop up consistently and constantly over the next 15 years. Uh, and then it comes to, uh, to a head again during uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's trip uh, to India, um, which, like, for the record, was a disaster. Like, the, the, the Liberal Party uh, and, and the government did not execute that trip well. Um, they did not understand the threats of that marketplace. They did not understand, like, the dynamics and the relationships between uh, the Indian state and diaspora communities like uh, like ours, right? Like, like the Sikh community and our relationship with the state there uh, as a marginalized people in India. So, you know, they go and they butcher it. Um, but like the media stories that came out as a result were so damaging and so harmful and so violent. And it was really frustrating uh, to see that and, and witness that. And, you know, I was... Um, I, at that time, I was in the mayor's office in Brampton, but I was a, an executive with the World Sick Organization. Uh, and, you know, we we got to work uh, and we launched a thing called Ask Canadian Six. And we tried really hard to insert ourselves into the conversation. Uh, after, you know, there was, um, there, was a, there was a young guy named Gurjeevan Singh. Uh, he's, he's actually a lawyer as well uh, in Ontario now. At the time, I think he was just a student. And he compiled a list on a Facebook post of 150 mainstream articles that were published in February of that year alone. So in the midst of this trip um, that spoke about the India trip in a negative way about, about the Sikh community, uh, the Sikh Canadian community. And, and what, what these stories were doing is they were lifting uh, narratives and talking points from India national media. Uh, and, I, and I guess we can talk about that, you know, in, in a bit why that's problematic, uh, but they're lifting stories from India national media which is entirely compromised. Um, you know, the, India has ranked 142 out of 180 countries on the World Press Freedom Index. And a lot of that has to do uh, with the government kind of the stranglehold on media and the narratives that it generates. Um, but our mainstream media didn't really speak to Canadians. Like it didn't speak to sick Canadians to get their perspective. 
And we were so incredibly frustrated. So we launched Ask Canadian Six. Uh, it was a, a viral hashtag. The engagements were in the millions uh, from six across Canada, but also six from the UK and the US because it was impacting all of us as a minority group. Like uh, the six people are like a transnational people. Like we're, we're all one big family and it, it is a small world. And so uh, from that experience, like it, that's where really, I really started thinking about it. We need our own platform. Um, and, you know, kind of thought about it. How would it look if we launched it? What would the vibe be? You know, what would the editorial direction be? Uh, and, and it kind of just festered in my mind uh, for a couple of years. Uh, but as part of that exercise uh, in the Ask Canadian Six campaign, uh, you know, we made a lot of relationships with journalists, uh, made a lot of relationships with uh, South Asian journalists, uh, not necessarily just Sikh or, or Punjabi. And um, we actually ended up getting editorial meetings with uh, major papers and major outlets across Canada. And, and I had the I had the great privilege of being part of those meetings. Um, eventually, I would end up becoming the executive director as this continued, this work continued on. So I was very much involved with it. And as part of these conversations, I quickly, again, realized like these guys are not equipped uh, to speak about this the problem that exists in newsrooms right that that exists in telling stories about marginalized communities like ours now the sick community is unique because we're a religious minority and we're also like a an ethnic like racial minority so there's a double minority and then we're also incredibly visible right uh with you know obviously uh, with our when, uh, men and women who wear turbans you know the men with the long beards you got your kapans like for those that are initiated in the faith um you know we really stand out and so when we get picked on, like the actual fear of hate crimes and, and the results of it is incredibly high. And we kind of also forget that, like, you know, six are also uh, often victims of Islamophobia. Right. So like you see how these all these kind of issues intersect with one another. So um, as a result of that, you know, we kind of kicked the ball around. We, we thought about it some, you know, how do we more effectively tell our story? You know, when we get op-eds in, in different papers, uh, you know, we've had success with that. I, I wrote an op-ed for Canada Land um, at that time. This was March. So February, all those terrible articles come out. March, I get an op-ed in Canada land where I speak about, you know, uh, when you talk about sick Canadians, it would make sense to speak to sick Canadians, but our newsrooms failed at that. Uh, and there was so many, there was this one great example. I think it was Power and Politics did a whole segment on sick Canadians and those four white people speaking about it. Uh, <laughs> that was a trigger for that piece. I mean, look, you, you're raising so many. So many things. Yeah, I was going to say. So like, I, mean, I, don't know, I don't even know where to begin. I'm but sorry. I got passionate. Me too. We, we're just saying, agreeing with everything you're yeah, saying. We're, we're just shaking our heads. But like, first off, kudos for, you know, what a, I think that's a really powerful story of you taking action, mm -hmm. sort of taking fate into your own hands, right? To kind of mm -hmm. be like, our voice isn't being heard. So yeah. let's make sure our voice is heard. And I mean, in this past year with, you know, the tragic death, of George Floyd and the movement that it sparked. It also sparked a movement of journalists coming out and saying how much racism exists in the newsrooms, right? So if, if those newsrooms are, you know, plagued with systemic racism, how are they actually gonna even speak on behalf of, or even cover, you know, marginalized communities, right? So that, I think that alone, like you said, speaks to the, the need for Baz Media. Um, and, you know, the, the, I think the Justin Trudeau point is a good point because just today, in Montreal, right? He was, there was a picture from that trip of him, right? Wearing yeah. a, 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 you know, a bandana on his head. And, and, you know, the caption is the Indian virus has arrived, right? So that's still being used to play up racist tropes. And, you know, who knows what the the out, the, the backlash is gonna be now that we're starting to use the, the term, the Indian virus too, right? Yeah, but, it's like know, this demonizing that happens, right? And um, yeah. yeah, and not to like, 
uh, talk about this point uh, too much, but um, you know, we saw it when when you know, the likes of Donald Trump were calling it like the China virus. Um, you you see it exactly. uh, when yeah, the different variants are giving these names. And it, and it demonizes the people because like the, the geography is not necessarily the important part of that. Right. It's, um, you know, the variants, not, not the fault of the geography. Uh, and, and a lot of instances, not even follow the people. Like we can talk about government mismanagement we can talk about, you know, the, the Modi government's complete incompetency on, on COVID mitigation. Um, but the moment you call like the Indian variant and then you associate the picture that uh, this was, a uh, the, the Montreal journal, I think, uh, that, that did that story. Um, you're, you're immediately associating certain images and certain words together. Uh, and it's, an, it's intention is, is actually, it, it's not an accident that that's being done. Uh, and, it, and it is trying to elicit a certain amount of emo, like harmful emotions out of individuals uh, and, and to demonize, again, I'm a marginalized group of people. And we saw it with uh, the Asian hate uh, or the hate targeted towards like the Chinese community. Uh, and, yeah, and our fear is that you know, we'll see a replication of that with the, uh, with the Indian uh, diaspora community here uh, with that kind of language. I'm just going to say that, you know, f- for me, it's not even just the overt examples of racism like samosa politics, like, um, you know, India virus, like China virus. It's the covert examples that are the most damaging. And, you know, I, I pulled this out. I was just talking about this with my partner. We were talking about the fact that you know, there was an article that we were reading on Sunday that said data shows 25% of Ontario patients transferred in third COVID-19 wave from Brampton and Mississauga hospitals. Now there's so, and the same thing was done here with Surrey and Richmond, which is a heavily East Asian populated area. And of course, Surrey, a heavy, heavily South Asian populated area. And those covert examples are, are almost even more problematic Um, And the reason for that, obviously, is because everybody knows that Brampton is heavily populated with South Asians. There's no question about that. And then you just throw on, on, you know, like a headline, 25% of patients are coming from there. The immediate association is, oh, look at all these brown people. They're hosting, you know, big Punjabi weddings. They're causing the coronavirus. And the same thing that, that was done here. And for me, those instances are even worse. So honestly, kudos for you for creating a new space. I think you made a, made a really, really valid, uh, valid observation. Um, you know, uh, it was a couple, I would say maybe it was two months ago or, or so. Um, there was this onslaught uh, when the second wave started rearing its head, um, blaming uh, Brampton specifically, because our, our numbers, our, our COVID transmission numbers were, were high. Um, and like on a per capita basis, uh, we're higher than anywhere else. Uh, and, and they continue to continue to be stubbornly high. Uh, and people around the province were, were essentially pointing, uh, gawking and laughing at Brampton. Um, but what I felt uh, and, and what I understood and I knew, right, like to your point, that this was Brampton was being used as a proxy to take shots at like the South Asian community. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, you know, just saying Brampton was a safe way of making what otherwise would be like an overt racist comment. Um, And they're stripping the humanity of the people that lived here. And so uh, when that was happening, and I I sat back and I watched a bit, I'm like, okay, well, maybe our politicians will say something, Uh, you know, a spoiler alert, they didn't. Um, (laughs) Then I'm like, uh, you know, well, maybe the region appeal will say something. 
uh, you know, they, they didn't. Um, and so I, I took to Twitter, which, which I do often, um, uh, and, and just, uh, you know, cut out some graphs that I, I saw in reports that showed that our transmissions were happening because of essential workers. Mm-hmm. And, and the connection yeah. that wasn't being made at that time was uh, transmissions that are happening here, like these stubborn transmission levels, is not because we're holding parties and weddings. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were taking it seriously. You know, I'm very involved with um, with the local Gurdwara here, uh, Ontario Kalsardabad, which is uh, the largest Gurdwara in North America, uh, or so they like to claim. I'm not sure. I can't verify that. Um, and uh, I, I knew the levels uh, they were taking to mitigate uh, COVID and, and to comply by public health standards. I knew what our stores were doing. I, I like we see it, right? Like people were taking this seriously. It wasn't a joke to anyone here. Uh, and what was happening was like people were being uh, stripped of uh, their humanity like they're being uh, it was being ignored that the fact that these folks are doing the essential job no one else wants to do you know my family I have people in my family who drive airport limo at Pearson airport uh, I'm sure there's a you know there's a limo in- industry at the Vancouver airport very similar to that right. it was the first industry to have deaths related to COVID right uh, because they're the ones getting exposed to virus the virus first before anyone else and they're getting multiple layers of it and, and it really angered me. Um, so I, I went to Twitter. I, I did this whole long thread of like, here's why COVID is high in Brampton. It's not because there's a bunch of brown people partying in backyards. Um, it's because they're, they're the truck drivers crossing the borders into America. And America was a mess at that time and bringing the virus back with them. They're bringing it back into you know, multi-generational homes, which, by the way, is a strength in the community. Uh, it's not a weakness. Um, but because they come back to multi-generational homes and because the federal government at that time didn't invest in isolation centers, uh, they were exposing their loved ones to COVID. So that now you have mitigation happening within the household. Uh, it's our essential workers that are in every grocery store across like the, the greater Toronto area. It's, it's our people that are working in the factories and the warehouses doing the overtime. Um, so on one hand, you guys are saying, hey, these guys are heroes. Let's uh, applaud uh, for essential workers. And at the other hand, you're pointing and laughing at Brampton. Uh, you know, so so the tweet went viral. Uh, I got invited on a bunch of media, um, and then I started taking shots at uh, Peel Health. Uh, but the point was, like, unless one of us stood up and shouted and screamed, uh, no one was mm-hmm. no one was doing that for us. Like, no mainstream right. outlet did that for us. Uh, and so I think it goes back to the point of like owning your narrative and understanding like that covert and overt, uh, you know, racist kind of uh, you know conversation and and and. Uh, the proxies that are used to to make these uh, to take these shots, uh, but then just you know uh, approaching it head on and calling it out straight up, and I think the mistakes we make, uh, kind of going back to the the larger point of media and like kind of the issues that exist in media, I think traditionally speaking we've we've tried to whitewash um, our identity and our story to try to make it more um, you know palatable for folks in the mainstream, and. You know, I, you know, we had it completely wrong. Like it was backwards. We, we were we were totally going the wrong direction. Uh, and what you, we actually need to do is be incredibly unapologetic for who we are uh, and tell our story. You know, segueing into this topic, I'm sure our listeners know at this point that the farmers protests have been happening in India for, I think in March, they said it was 100 days of official protest, but technically yeah. a lot more than that. It depends um, on how you count it. So the protests started you know uh, i think the date people like to give is like your original kind of sit-ins that happened within like punjab the state uh, i think was in 
September is when those started. And then the march to Delhi started in late November. So when they say a hundred plus days, whatever, they're counting from the march from that started in November. And that's the thing, whether you count it from November or even earlier than that, it's deemed to be one of the largest protests and now arguably maybe one of the longest running protests in history. And so, you know, we were just hoping for our listeners, you could provide for those who aren't familiar with it, you know, a summary of why these protests are happening, maybe just a brief description of where we're at. It's still ongoing and then how they've been depicted in the media so far here. I think first and foremost, they're protesting the way uh, the three separate laws, like these these laws were brought forward. So um, they rush through the laws during the COVID pandemic. Uh, so that was that was issue number one. Uh, issue number two is they used a parliamentary procedure known as ordinances, uh, which bypasses normal parliamentary procedure uh, in like normal debates and committee hearings that are normally associated with legislation like this. So they uh, they bypass stakeholder engagement. And so a lot of these farmer unions, a lot of the farmers that would be impacted directly by these changes were never actually asked by the central government uh, for their opinion and, and the normal kind of process. Um, and then as the, the bill was passed uh, from the lower house to the upper house, uh, they used what was uh, known as a, an oral vote, which is not typically what you use for uh, important, considerable piece of legislation. Like the, the bills are are corporatizing the agricultural space. Uh, so, you know, some of the fears from farmers, as the legislation currently exists, um, are that uh, you're going to have what's called contract farming. So corporations can bypass what is now uh, what is now the normal process of uh, the Monday system or like this wholesale system uh, where farmers sell to a middleman who uh, gives them a minimum standard price. Uh, so it's a guaranteed income of sorts for the produce that they, they make, which provides a, a predictable stream of funding uh, that farmers can um, work against every year. So it, it gets rid of that minimum standard price. Uh, it also removes essentially the bargaining power of these farmers because corporations can go one to one and corporations obviously have much greater means. You know, it's an asymmetrical relationship uh, between farmers in India who actually are mostly small farmers who own a handful of acres. Um, and so they don't necessarily have the means to uh, go toe to toe with corporations. The other issue is that. Uh, the legislation uh, gets rid of normal grievance processes and the normal process in which you can uh, take your matters through the courts and it strips the farmer's ability uh, to file complaints, uh, again, like in the normal court uh, procedure. And so farmers um, have been adamant uh, that, you know, we've, we've always asked for reform, right? Because farming in India is broken. Uh, there's a suicide epidemic in, in, in India. Uh, you know, farmers are uh, increasingly getting uh, poorer. Uh, and so, you know, the Indian government will often say, well, we need reform. And the farmers are like, yeah, we do, but uh, not this reform. This is not the reform we want. Um, but what really, uh, what really triggered, uh, I think, the diaspora community to get really behind it, and, and I think what made it a huge deal in India was this march. Uh, and not the margin of itself, it's the, the attempts made by the BJP government to stop the march from reaching Delhi. Uh, so, you know, we saw police brutality, water cannons, uh, tear gas, uh, you know, 
police, uh, what, what, what's known as lati charges or, or baiting charges, uh, or baton charges by the police, um, where they're literally beating up protesters with stairs. Eventually, these farmers get to the outskirts of Delhi, where they're blockaded by the government from entering. And they set up camps at multiple border entries uh, into Delhi, uh, which is where they've more or less have remained now uh, for the last three, four months. Now COVID is ravaging through India. And so um, we will see how much that changes the channel. Uh, but uh, even, even amidst like COVID, uh, you know, the new variants that have been emerging in India uh, and the havoc they've been creating in cities like Delhi, uh, the farmers say they're not moving because um, they know once they move, it's over, right? Like the movement's over and they're not going to be allowed to congregate again. But Jessica, and I was wondering, like, you know, you're you're so media savvy, obviously. What's your opinion on the coverage of the farmers protests here in Canada? So all in all, I, I think I think we have seen um, a stark improvement. And, and I think there has been a sincere effort, um, at least from from what I've seen. Uh, for for a lot of journalists to do just do a better job, I, you know, you mentioned uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, and, and I think the the reckoning it, it brought on kind of the inequalities that exist and uh, the experience of racialized communities, uh, you know, obviously the Black community very specifically, and, and the unique challenges uh, that uh, that community faces, uh, but then you know that has had a considerable spillover effect for all racialized communities, uh, in that uh, I, I think media houses uh, trying their best uh, to be, again, more nuanced in, in the reporting and, and do a better job of reflecting voices from the ground. Uh, and hopefully that's, that's sustainable and, and that we continue seeing that. And, you know, there's been mistakes. There's been stories that, you know, I, you know, if I could go back and tell them to edit something, I, I, you know, I would be like, hey, you know, this is problematic. You need to change it. Um, and that's never going to go away. You know, that, that level of human error is probably always going to be there. Um, but I, the, the ability to challenge those is is much healthier than it was in the past. Uh, it's not as adversarial. Um, and I, I think a lot of folks actually want to do a sincerely good job. You know, and that's great to hear because I think sometimes it, it is a little bit easier to look, to look at the negative and it's nice to speak to someone that kind of has a broader view and is in touch with these media sources. I know personally in the South Asian community in the West, there, there was a lot of frustration with a lot of negative coverage, but to be fair, you know, in comparison to previous, you know, um, stories about the South Asian community or in comparison to coverage in general, it wasn't as much that the positive definitely outweighed the negative. I know I saw stories on, I, I think in Alberta, there, there was uh, stories on the farmers protesters there um, being called terrorists or, um, stories like, you know, just, just incorrect facts about how, you know, that they're, they're clogging up the roads with, you know, their truck rallies and, and this and that. So it's nice to know that despite, you know, the, the negative stories that have come out, that it is getting better and it is getting more positive because sometimes we can get a little bit weighed down. And I, I do think having that type of social media attention from Rihanna and more popular um, people on social media definitely helped. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah. 110%. Yeah. It's like a third party verifier, right? It's right. It, it just wasn't taken as seriously before. And I think people were more careful about labeling the situation incorrectly in that way. Yeah. Even, Rihanna, even Rihanna gave everyone social license, right? Let's be clear. Rihanna was labeled a Khalistani and yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. He was, so, but, but, but Rihanna is a Khalistani. Rihanna <laughs> is a Khalistani. She advocates for Khalistan. Uh, 
and she does an excellent job of it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think Rihanna provided a lot of social license um, and, it, and it made it cool, right? Uh, and again, all that dissipates <laughs> rather quickly, um, but like the attention it brought when it did uh, was huge. It was absolutely huge. But I think it's the power of... Um, the power of like our voices here in the diaspora uh, and, and shaping conversations and narratives back home. And like, this is true of like, you know, it's true of the Chinese community. I think it's uh, true, of, true of the Iranian community. Like it's, it's true of many other like diaspora communities here who uh, may have at times uh, tensions with back home. Right. Uh, and so um, I, I think that that's really important for us to effectively tell our stories here because um, in many ways we're able to voice opinions um, and perspectives that are reflective of you know our families and friends back home, but they cannot articulate, uh, not because they don't understand the issue, because they're just not given a platform uh, from governments. I would be more happy to see them, you know, shut up and, and stay quiet. You know, like I think it goes back to what you said before about the power of owning your own narrative. Like, I think the positive coverage that we've just talked about, it's mostly been led by people of color in those newsrooms, right? Who have That's spoken right. up, hundred percent. It need no, no, no. You've got it wrong, white producer. It needs to be said this way, right? And yeah. I think it's it's the power of us as a community breaking through that model minority myth where we only become <laughs> lawyers as three lawyers do <laughs> host this podcast. <laughs> two and a half lawyers. Two and a half lawyers. Two and a half lawyers. Two and a half. And we actually start doing cool stuff like you, where we actually go into journalism. <laughs> we actually like you know are brave enough to be like the Neetu Gurchas, right? And and becoming, uh, you know, reporters and doing that sort of stuff. But like, you know, talking about the the sort of diversity of, of the South Asian community um, and, you know, the Asian community in general, and in this moment where we're all kind of facing uh, racism, like whether it's the East Asian community, whether it's the Sikh community, whether it's, you know, the Muslim community. I was wondering- the Atlanta you... shootings to the Indianapolis shootings, one after yeah. the other. Yeah, I was wondering what you think the points of solidarity are right now for for our communities, whether it's in sphere of media or just broader advocacy. Where do you, where do you think? How do you think we can really capitalize as different communities in this moment to come together? Yeah, I think a lot of our struggles are shared, right? Because like the underlying issues um, are are quite similar, uh, and not not in all regards, right? Like I think we do have like there's there's different things in, in each of our the contexts in which like we're, we're perceived in, uh, you know, in Canada um, that makes us all unique, but there's a, there's a lot of underlying issues. Uh, you know, a lack of diversity in the newsroom is going to impact all of us uh, quite equally. Uh, the, um, you know, the, the risks uh, we face as marginalized communities are, are the same everywhere. Um, lazy stories that like marginalize, malign, you know, stigmatize uh, community um, are, are felt by all of us. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, there's this very direct, um, you know, like I gave the Islamophobia example, uh, you know, that may not be necessarily targeted at the Sikh community, but we, we're going to feel it. Uh, we're going to feel it as well. Uh, and so I think uh, our, our experiences are often shared, even if uh, we may be like indirect uh, you know, quote unquote, collateral kind of damage on, you know, whatever um, the harmful target, uh, like the harmful framing is actually targeting. And so I think it's important for us to collectively uh, speak out together uh, and, and fight for one another. Being a lawyer, do you, what role do you think the legal community has with dealing with these types of issues that are often seen as global, like the farmers protests or, you know, like, 
anti-Asian hate crimes, for example, happening in the US or, or wherever? Where, where do you think the legal community fits in? Even if you're not technically a lawyer that's you know, known for being a part of advocacy. Yeah, like this is this is like this is an issue, right? Like I, I think sometimes the mistake we make as professionals, uh, and this is not unique again to law, um, is that well, it's not our domain, so therefore we won't speak to it. And and I think lawyers are guilty of this, I think, because we're kind of trained not to say anything. Um, and so, uh, you know, th- that's that's such a huge mistake because I, I think um, lawyers carry a certain amount of weight, right? Like there's. Uh, there's a certain amount of um, credibility associated with being a lawyer. Put aside all the lawyer jokes, right? Like there, there really is one. Um, and if, if lawyers are going to use their, their platform uh, to speak out on issues like this, uh, it, it, it means a lot because, again, it, it applies that credibility that we appreciate and the privilege we appreciate, appreciate as, as lawyers uh, to the cause. That, you know, these are smart people who probably sat down and thought about this before speaking up, right? Um, and you know, these are people we, we trust um, with you know, very serious matters, lending their voice to a cause. Uh, and, and I think it does, it does help in amplifying uh, those issues. Yeah, I'm gonna jump in there and just say that- Yeah, go ahead. What like, you raised such a great point about how I think, you know, we assume that the legal profession uh, the media sphere, all these places are neutral bodies, right? Which are free from bias and free from influence. Whereas we know for a fact, like which are, with, whether it's our judiciary, whether it's a legal profession, whether it's the media, you know, historically they've served the most privileged, right? And they've marginalized the most marginalized and perpetuated those gaps. So I think, you know, what, what, what you're saying makes a lot of sense that, you know, we have a, almost a duty as marginalized communities to make sure that we we get our voice in there too and start influencing those spheres to to actually um, bring back that neutrality that's supposed to be there but is is largely absent right, right. And if, if not to you know express our own narratives and to feel stronger within these professions as minorities but if not for that reason then at least for the reason of servicing our clients better and understanding the, the the global baggage that that comes with them. Yeah, and this is the test I always give to myself: is what's the point of our parents coming here, um, or whatever whatever generation you may be? I, I know it's a little weird out west. There's like third, fourth generation brown people there, which is absolutely scary. It makes no <laughs> sense to me. Um, but yeah, like, uh, you know, what was the point of our families coming here? What was the point of our community lifting us up? Uh, and, and I know, like, some people like to think that, you know, we are where we are in spite of our community. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily believe that. Um, and, and fighting uh, day and night to ensure we, we grew up as decent human beings. If we were going to go into these positions... And then not use it to like shamelessly advocate for our community. Like I don't get it, um, and and I've seen I've seen enough of it where it really disappointed me. It's like, man, like you made it. You should be turning around and lifting up as many of us as you can with you. I think that goes the same for our advocacy orgs. Like, what's the point of you know like an, an Asian uh, law um, association 
uh, or you know, whatever it may be, if you're not taking aggressive stance for uh, that community uh, in, in whatever way it presents itself. And yeah, I get it. Not every time is going to make sense in the mandate, but I know, you know, if you, if you try hard enough, you can probably put everything in your mandate uh, and you can speak out on these issues. Uh, and trust me, it makes you better. Uh, it, it doesn't make you less. Uh, and I, I think, again, we owe it. We owe it to our, our parents, you know, who drove taxis and worked in factories uh, and barely saw us growing up uh, so that they can they can make sure we we have a life when we can be we can freaking spend an hour and a half here chatting to one another about these issues. You know what I mean? Uh, so like the onus is on us to be unapologetic about it and, and not be shy again. Yeah. To, to advocate fearlessly on stuff. Um, like, so that would be my challenge. Uh, I don't know to any lawyers listening. I mean, that's such a good point that, you know, our parents' generation probably, probably couldn't imagine sitting around for an hour and a half and chatting about these so, issues. So they privileged. would probably be like, I got stuff to do. I got a second job to work. I got food to make. And yet, you know, we have so much privilege to do that. And you're right. Like we have um, an obligation to use these platforms to speak about these issues because, I mean, our parents packed up their bags and came to a place where it was cold they didn't speak the language, they didn't know the culture, and they faced an immense amount of racism. And I think we're doing a, them a disservice by allowing that racism to continue, right? And we need to be the ones that actually put an end to that racism, whether it's not, not just for like the Muslim community, the Sikh community, it's for whatever community we see, whether that's like, you know, the LGBTQ community, the indigenous community. Like, I think that's the great thing about our, our generation is that we're seeing the intersections and connections between like, oh, hey, the racism that my community experienced, that's the same racism that, you know, the Sikh community experienced or the, the indigenous community here, which was here before our parents came here, um, has experienced. And um, yeah, I think I think that's sort of the, the beautiful thing about what our, our, our generation is doing and the advocacy work that we're doing. And I'll just say that you reminded me of Brene Brown and her quote that, you know, we're at, we're at our best when we're brave and vulnerable. Okay, well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on. This has been such a great conversation and I can't wait to share it with the rest of our membership and everywhere else. Um, yeah, those is I think fun. We, I'm glad. The farmers protest has been happening for so long, as, as you mentioned. And so it's just nice to give another light to this conversation and then tie it in with all the other issues that, that we covered with media representation. No, honestly, it's been great. Thank you for tuning into the Fackle BC podcast. Visit our website at facultbc.ca and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at facultbc. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest. If you have guest speaker suggestions, please email us at membership at facultbc.ca.